The word of God from Isaiah 41 through 11. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be re revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently tend those that are with young. All together, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please uh, remain standing for just one moment more as we commend this time to the Lord. Father, thank you for Isaiah 40. Uh, thank you for um, sweet songs. Uh, thank you for your presence. Um, and thank you for the comfort that we find in these um, ancient scriptures. Uh, Lord, we are grass. We are like flowers of the field. And, um, and so we need your presence to sustain us. And so we would ask that you would be present in a special way, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. This is, uh, you feel it coming upon us? It's sweet, isn't it? Uh, nothing says Merry Christmas quite like Bruce Willis's Die Hard. That's a Christmas movie. And... Uh, uh, red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay, maybe not that so much, but uh, I needed a reason to bring them up. Uh, have you ever noticed that um, artists that have really suffered or have been addicted or maybe have just had a really hard life, uh, that they write really good music? Hard things make for good poetry. Uh, Anthony Kiedis, the lead singer in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, in perhaps one of his most famous songs, Under the Bridge, uh, he writes this. He says, um, sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. Some of y'all are singing that, even as I said those letters, right? Uh, 
So the song is a lament about his complex relationship that he has with the city, right? And, and the city and the people of the city are kind of the same thing. Um, the Old Testament was doing that way before the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, there's this beautiful song in the Old Testament that's born out of this intense pain. So Jeremiah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, he writes a song about all the people who were taken, yanked from their home, and exiled, right? It, that song is called Lamentations. Did you know that? So Lamentations, uh, it begins, let me just read the, the opening lines of Lamentations and think about it like in terms of like Red Hot Chili Peppers. It says this, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. There is no comfort. Now, I begin this way uh, because that's actually the context of Isaiah 40, which we're going to study this morning. So Isaiah 40 was written to people who've been yanked from their homes, right, from their city. And there's no comfort. Uh, you guys, it would be something like this. Y'all remember that movie from the 80s, Red, uh, Red Dawn? Y'all remember that movie, right? Um, not, the, not the new one that they made like in the 2000s, but the old one. But if you haven't seen the movie, it imagines a world where Soviet Russia invades the United States and begins to put people in prison camps. But there are a few kids who maintain, you know, don't get captured and they end up saving the day. Kind of awesome. Um, well, Isaiah 40 would be like that, but, but if we were in it, right? So imagine... Like, I don't know, Denver was overrun by Russia, and then all of us were like relocated down south, like in Mexico or Venezuela or something. And while you're now in exile outside of your city, this place that you love, you're living this new, lonely, painful, oppressive life, and, uh, and then a prophet's message is uncovered. Imagine it. I mean, could you even believe it if that were true? The darkness that the prophet's message would tell you that the and the depression could abate. And so instead of a song where you say there is none to comfort, what if the song begins like this? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. I mean, what would that be like? What would it take to truly be comforted? So today we're gonna study Isaiah, 70, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, but there have been 39 chapters before that have been pretty for the most part, pretty negative, bad news. Uh, but when the prophet speaks, like you can't listen to him the way you guys like listen to me, right? You're like, ah, oh, do I like his sermon or not? Yeah, no, you can't do that with him, right? When a prophet speaks, he's like this authorized spokesman for God. The prophets were the people in Israel who were like outside of the, 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 the cultic system, right? You have kings and you have priests. And when they didn't do their job, they needed uh, accountability. And so there were these prophets. They were like covenant enforcers. And what they had said, they said, God, they, 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 they said, you, they're speaking on behalf of God, you must keep your covenant with me. Because if you don't, you're going to be exiled. And sure enough, like an addict, like an addict, 
Israel ran to other lovers. Like they blew off God. And sure enough, exile would come. But Isaiah writes this letter to those who find themselves in that captivity. And our passage starts in chapter 40. And chapter 40 could be understood like an intervention. You guys know what an intervention is? So an intervention is this coordinated event for an addict. And it's filled with people, or the people who participate are, are people who love the addict, who love that person, and, and wants that person to snap out of it, right? These delusions. Now, the addict doesn't know that it's going to happen, but when he walks into the room, it's a room filled with people who care about him or her, and the way that an intervention starts is everyone in the room looks at the person who enters and says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm not giving up on you. I care about you. Every single person. The idea is, is that the voices of all those people saying, I love you, would be louder than the addiction. And that it would give the addict hope and comfort for a better day. That's what Isaiah 40 is. That's what Isaiah 40 is. It is a promise of renewed comfort. Doesn't that sound good? Man, doesn't it feel like the last couple of years have kind of yanked us from the life that we want? It's, it's dragged us away, right? It's, it's the pandemic. It's uh, the polarization of a country that we love. It's... Uh, the spirit of this lack of sympathy and empathy for people who are different than us. It's marriages that are hurting. It's children who are disillusioned. And listen, like a lot of people that we love, man, they didn't survive it. They haven't survived these last two years. Uh, people that we know have died. Um, children, marriages have collapsed. Children are angry. And it feels dark. And it, it's because it is. And, and is that where the story ends? Like, is that where the story ends? Or is there comfort breaking through? Um, this is what Israel's experience is. This comfort breaking through. Um, what we're going to read in our study here in Isaiah 40 has brought comfort to every generation for 1,500 years, or 2,500 years. It's, it's incredible. Uh, so we're going to study this renewed comfort together. That's what I hope to do. And, and let me just say, if you are here and you're a visitor, we're really glad you're here. If you're here and you're, and, and you're not a Christian, like you're just like, seeing, I, I just come to a Christian church for Christmas time, we're really glad that you're here. I think you're going to find it really um, uh, compelling why Christians would just read over, pour over ancient words and then to find these words so beautiful. That's what I hope you'll find as we do this. So as we study Isaiah 40, I kind of have just three sections. Uh, we're going to look at the basis of comfort, which is verses 3 through 5. Then the source of comfort, which is verses 6 through 8. And then the response to comfort, verses 9 through 11. So make sure you keep your Bibles open. That'll be it. Let's begin with the basis of comfort. Uh, when I met my wife, Amanda, she was still in the university, 
and I had just graduated, and so I was actually stationed in my wife's uh, hometown, and we started dating, but then the Air Force moved me to Little Rock, Arkansas, and from Little Rock to West Texas, where she was, it was roughly, a, I don't know, about a 10-hour drive, and in those days, there's no, like, iPhones, I know, believe it or not, uh, no Google Maps. You know, what you did is you got out on your dial-up, and you printed out MapQuest, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's what you did. Or, or what you would do, you drive, and the moment you cross the state border, you stopped at the, the closest service station, and you bought a map. And that's how we used to do it. Nevertheless, my wife, Amanda, and a few of her girlfriends wanted to visit me on their spring break, and so they make the drive. And now they were somewhere in rural Arkansas when it began to rain, and their car hydroplaned, and they totaled it. And there she is, uh, wet, shaken up, and lost. And I get a call by an unknown number very late that night. That's not a kind of phone call you want to be waking up to. And it was Amanda. And she was really upset. She doesn't know what to do, right? And I say, Amanda, I'm coming for you. That's all I said. Amanda, I'm coming for you. And I did. I'm coming for you. Now, Amanda describes to me the relief of those words, uh, the happiness, the affection. I am coming for you. Right? There's this, there is this comfort that comes upon her. That's the experience that the first listeners of Isaiah had. God's saying, I'm coming for you. Affection, relief, comfort. See, the picture that you have in verses 3 through 5 is the presence of God coming to his people who are in the wilderness. And remember, the wilderness is this metaphor for really trying times. And so look at verse 5. It says, the glory of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, shall be revealed. Like what? How? And it says, and all flesh shall see it together. Like how? Like we've already talked about this. No eye can lay, can look upon God without being incinerated by his holiness. Like what in the world? God is coming to rescue. And when he comes, he doesn't need map quests. He doesn't have to learn the shortcuts, the secret passageways. Why? Because the terrain is going to turn into this super highway running right through the desert. Look at verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Like the tectonic plates are shifting, making a way for this rescuer. Now listen, that description of the terrain, this is not about rocks and rivers and mountains. This is about your heart. Listen, how do I know this? If you were to go to the Gospels in the New Testament and organize them like by the dates they were written chronologically, if you were to do it that way, the very first verse in your New Testament would be Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just read the opening lines of Mark 1 with this in mind. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a really good start. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
So according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. So John the Baptist is announcing that God is coming to rescue us. And so the comfort and the and the uh, the, the comfort that we experience is actually tied to the description of this terrain, right? So the mountains of arrogance and the exalted, they must be flattened. And the valleys of crushed spirits, those will be lifted up. And the arrogant and the crushed will, are all made to fit the arrival of the rescuer. Which one are you? Do you, um, do you hate yourself? And I, I, like, I ask that question tenderly. Um, do you like struggle with self-hatred, um, with regret? Like, are there narratives in your mind that you play over and over and you just wish you could, you could get back there and redo it and have a do-over? Do you ever struggle with regret? Maybe feel like you're not enough? Or, or are you overly impressed with yourself? Like, are you super self-reliant? In fact, you find it hard to pray because you're so stinking competent. And who needs to pray and ask God for anything when you can do it yourself? Is that you? We know this, you guys, but the gospel of Jesus Christ says you can't be impressed with yourself. You can't be arrogant. Your situation and your life is so bad that God had to hang on a cross for you. It's bad. But the Bible also says that you can't hate yourself. You can't suffocate with regret because God says you're so, so valuable and so lovely that he was glad to send his son into the world to die for you because he loves you. Which one are you? You will begin to experience renewed comfort this season when your deserty heart is a super highway for Jesus. Those are verses three through five. So God's rescue is the basis of our comfort, but what is its source? Verses six through eight. Now, like a good Reformed pastor, I haven't quite hit my quota for uh, Lord of the Rings here, so I'll, I'll just do it again. Uh, if you uh, don't know uh, Lord of the Rings, like, what? Who doesn't? But uh, anyway, it's, it's a fantasy, you know, uh, set in a fictional reality of Middle Earth. And in Tolkien's mythology, there's this ring that was created that's so powerful that whoever has it can destroy and overpower everyone else. And so this ring needs to be destroyed. So in the first book or the first movie, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this scene uh, towards the end where the elves and the humans and the dwarves and the hobbits are all circled around for a meeting and sitting on a stump between all of them is this ring, right? And so one of the characters is explaining that this ring must be destroyed. And so this very capricious dwarf was like, that's it? Like, we just have to destroy it? Sounds easy enough. And he takes his axe and he tries to slam it on the ring. And the, the, the power of the ring reverberates and he lands on his backside, right? And everyone kind of knew that was going to happen. So one of the elves pipes up. And perhaps too casually said, explains that the ring has to be thrown into the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor. And then there's a silence. 
Like, oh, that's easy. Well, like, what are we waiting for, right? And one of the humans, and there's like so many memes made about this movement. One of the humans, his name's Boromir. He says like with disgust, he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. It's like you, you might as well have said, hey, all you have to do is swim across the Pacific with a snorkel, right? That kind of incredulity, that is what we're talking about, what would have been present in the hearts of those who are receiving Isaiah 40. Like these Israelite exiles are in hostage in Babylon, right? The most powerful empire in the known world. Great, awesome. God is going to liberate us. He's coming to rescue us. But this is not going to go down without a fight. Like a lot of people are going to die. I mean, we're going to get slayed like bugs on a windshield. And they're exiles. They're weak. They're not exactly in a position of strength. They can't help themselves, you see. And God knows this. And so the source of comfort is not found in our ability to free ourselves. It's not in our strength. God knows this. Look at this, verse 6. It says, cry. Sure. What shall we cry? What do I say? Verse 6b, this is what you say. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. What? Now, that didn't go exactly the way I thought it was going to go. Bad news, we're all grass. Good news, the Babylonians are grass too. All humanity is under God's voice. And here's the thing. If the burden of rescue is on us, then we should be cynical. We should. But the message here is not be strong enough, power through it. Your positivity will get you through this. No, the message is, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, but the word of our God will stand forever. Like his word, his promises, his strength, he is the liberator. The source of comfort is not in our strength or even in our faith. That's really good news for those of us who live a sometimes stumbling life. It's in none of those things. It is in God's word. That's how come we repeat that refrain to, to preach this to ourselves every time we hear the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people. It's not about you. It's about God. And the comfort of God, the, the comfort that God offers has to be more, and has, now listen, it has to be more than God asking God just to fix the present discomfort that we're experiencing right now. Whatever that thing is that you wish was different. Listen, if God's rescue could, could only be understood in terms of dealing with the Babylonians for the original audience, then they are in big trouble. Why? Because after the Babylonians, the Persians come. And then after them, the Medes come, right? And, and then you have Alexander the Great, history buffs here. Alexander the Great, with the greatest army the world had ever known, slices through the Persian Empire like a hot knife on butter. They seemed unbeatable until, of course, Rome. By the time that Jesus is born, Israel 
still sees themselves in captivity. Because there's always another empire. There is always another bad day, which means your comfort, if it's tied to those things, is really fragile. But God is offering something deeper, and we have to pay attention to this. Like every self-help book is pumping into us the idea that all we need is ourselves and determination, Right? Listen to me. I am all for self-determination and grit. I try to teach those virtues into my own children. But if we primarily understand ourselves as self-rescuers, we will either be outright arrogant, right, with superiority complexes the size of Nazi Germany, or we will be outright tired and cynical about this life, a world that is relentless with bad things and bad days. The source of comfort that we need must not come from the world itself. It has, it has to be anchored in an external and eternal reality. That's how come Isaiah actually begins by telling these exiles, verse 2, how does it begin? Verse 2, her iniquity is pardoned. That's a heavy sacred word, iniquity, right? And it's not just forgiven. That word means that it was atoned for. It's like it's dealt with. Her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all of her sins. In other words, God is saying, your comfort and your rescue is deeper than you even understand, and I'm coming for you. Like, however great your sins are, whatever the extent of iniquity, there's double grace to cover it. Double grace. It's like that story in Mark where you have the paralytic and his four friends. Do y'all remember this story? Like they, these friends really wanted their friend to walk again. And they were hearing about this rabbi, Jesus, who was like not your ordinary rabbi. And they knew if they could just get their friend to him, he would heal them. He would heal their friend. The problem is, is Jesus is surrounded by these crowds. They can't get anywhere near. So these jokers climb on the roof of some dude they don't even know. And like dig a hole in this guy's house. That's a little rude. And then they create a pulley system to lower their friend right into the presence of Jesus. And what does he say? What does Jesus say? They do it. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your iniquity is pardoned. Now later, he's going to say, get up and walk. But listen here, and you've got to get this point. If that paralytic's comfort was connected to his legs, then the next time a horse wagon blows out his ACL, he's back into exile in no time at all. It can't be connected to his legs. Jesus wants something deeper. And he wants something deeper for us and our children. I'm afraid that the source of our comfort is either tied to ourselves or to something in this world. But the Advent message is an affront to this. 
And it's that something, or rather someone outside of our world stepped into it to rescue us and to bring us home into the presence of God himself. Is that how you tell Christmas story? Like, is that the story you've been reciting every single day to your children and your friends and to yourself? That we are like grass, but God came into the world to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Because if you don't understand this message of Christmas, a thousand presents underneath the Christmas tree will only make you sick to your stomach. And it'll actually do something to our souls. Enough will never be enough. Because you're looking to be rescued and the presents aren't doing it. Like nothing is working. If the, weight, if the weight of burden of being rescued is on your shoulders or on the presence underneath the tree, then you are in trouble. Because when you look inward or you look underneath the tree, you just see futility. And it makes you sick to your stomach. But God's promises, those, they will stand forever. What if, what if we're just a church that believed that this Christmas? So, all right. So we looked at the basis of comfort, God's rescue, and the source of it from him, not from ourselves. Let me, uh, I've gone a little long. Let me conclude with our last point, and it's a response to comfort, verses 9 through 11. Uh, when I was young, each summer, uh, we would get into this old uh, Ford conversion van. Do y'all remember those things? They were ugly. We had one of those. It was like goldish brown. I don't know, why, I don't know the aesthetic back then, but that's what it was. And uh, we would drive to Monterey, Mexico to visit my grandparents. Now, from Houston to Monterey, it's quite a drive. And so what we would do is we'd make like a pallet in the very back of the, of the van and we would just sleep, and no seat belts. All right, don't judge me. It was the 80s, all right? And um, so we'd all, kids, there's four of us, we'd sleep in the back. When we'd go through customs, we'd get out, then go back, lay down, and sleep. And, um, and we'd do that. But what would happen is when we were getting close, usually one of the four kids uh, would spot these gorgeous mountains so I don't know if you know, but Monterey is actually um, 1,800 feet above uh, elevation, and it's besides, it's nestled in these beautiful mountains. I mean, they're quite rocky mountains, all right? So don't be so judgy. People don't have your mountains, but they're, they're, they're really pretty. And, um, and so as soon as one of the kids would spot the mountains, uh, because of his excitement, they, he would start waking up the others, right? It was like this contagious excitement. Uh, you just couldn't, couldn't contain themselves, right? Had to get everyone up, get everyone involved. That's kind of what we're seeing in Isaiah 40. It's this kind of contagious comfort, or in the same way there's this contagious excitement, right? Throughout this entire passage, you see this sharing of comfort. Let, let me just show you how, how you see it. Starts it all the way in verse 2 with, with this telling of this, this uh, command to speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of a weird thing, weird thing to say because they're in Babylon, right? So remember Red Don, like you imagine you're in Russia, and the prophet says, speak tenderly to, to Denver, right? Verse 2a, cry to her. Verse 3, a voice cries. There's just like this pleading. Verse 6, a voice says, 
cry again. And then verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, O Denver, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, say to the cities of Colorado, behold your God. What's happening here? The comforted are now becoming the comforters. Like they're becoming the heralds of comfort, right? It's the rescued who are now the non-anxious presence in the city of anxiety and depression and cynicism. It's the rescued who are a non-anxious presence in the city of depression. And then what, what the prophet describes is unthinkable. He says, behold your God. And then Isaiah describes God in two different ways. Verse 10, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So this is like a picture of a mighty king whose armies are matchless, right? He comes with spoils of war, right? Listen, you guys, DPs, like we need a God who is more than just sentimental, more than just a good therapist who can listen. You won't, you won't pray to that God if you don't think he can actually do something with your hurts. We need a strong, strong God. That's, and this is what the Jews were waiting for in the time of Jesus. But you also have the second, mess, uh, the second image. Look there in verse 11 now. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom. This is a God who's tender, he lays down his life for the sheep, gathers them. He, he warms them with his arms. This is what God, their rescuer, will look like, like a warrior shepherd, right? A God of incomprehensible might and mercy. Like this is the rescuer that they were waiting on, merciful and mighty, this warrior king, shepherd warrior king. Now when... Now, when Jesus, when we read the Bible and look back at Jesus' arrival, right, he's born in a manger. It's not a palace. It's very humble. He identifies with the shepherds, kind of like the outcasts of society. He, he, loves on, he loves on lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes, all the invisibles, right? He loves on them. The only crown that this king wears would be a crown made of thorns. And then he hangs on a shameful cross and dies. So I see, when I look back on the first advent, I, I can see Jesus as a shepherd. I see him, but where's this warrior shepherd? I mean, I, I see the shepherd, but where's the warrior shepherd? Well, back to my metaphor in Monterrey, Mexico. Um, I, so as we're driving into Monterrey, you see the mountain range. You can actually, the same phenomena, I was in the mountains yesterday on I-70 heading towards the mountains. But when you drive up to the mountains, uh, they look like they're all next to each other. It looks like just like a row of mountains. But then you get into the mountains and you realize that mountains are actually very far from each other, right? So there are actually endless valleys between the mountains. Well, from the perspective of Isaiah, he sees these two descriptions of God and he mashes them together, just like what the mountains look like from Denver, right? The shepherd king is the first advent. But where you and I are in this moment of history, 
we're in the valley between these two advents, between these peaks. The rescuer is coming, and he will come as the warrior, kingly shepherd. That's the second advent that we're waiting on. And like, this is like, this is really good news. Like, like pick up the phone, call one another, say, tell everyone, like God says, I'm coming for you. Tell everyone that that's, what God, that's the message that God sent to you. I'm coming for you. The rescuer is coming. He's coming to get us. We're the heralds of this truth. Like, and every Sunday, we sit in these chairs. I'm like, why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's because we live in, in this deserty valley between these two mountains, between these two advents, right? And life is really hard in the valley. And the magic of Christmas is not enough to get us through this valley. Listen, most of the people we really care about can't understand why their spirits just can't shake off this cloud of futility and aimlessness that haunts them. I mean, what's this life for? What are we even doing here? I'm listening to this podcast that discusses like all the techies in the Silicon Valley, right? They're like the puppet masters in the tech world that have really strong faith in world-changing, world-saving power of technology. They believe that there is a clever solution for every, or, or like a hack, right? For every new problem that we're faced with. Now listen, hacks are great. I'm all for hacks. My kids watch this YouTube thing with like life hacks. It's interesting. There is no hack for death and sin. You either live in captivity or you're rescued from it. No hacks. And God so loved the world that he sent his son, Christmas, to become one of us, to rescue us. Comfort, comfort my people. Every week, we look around here, and like heralds, we say to one another over and over again, God said it, I'm coming for you. That's what we're doing here. And if we neglect this one small fraction of your, listen, I know most of your week is not spent here. It's like an hour or two of your whole week. Most of your life is outside of here, outside of this moment. But if you and I, uh, but if you neglect this one moment, spiritually, you'll start to wilt. Your spirit cannot be refreshed, no matter how beautiful the mountains are. And you do see, get the presence of God in the mountains. You need this moment of heralding. Because if you and I resort to looking for well, not because if you and I look for comfort from lovers who don't stick around. So maybe that image of the intervention is really apt for us. We need a room full of people looking at us and saying, I love you. I'm for you. I'm not giving up on you. I love you. Until that message kind of drowns out the addiction, 
this, this hopelessness that we feel. And most of all, what you really need to know and to hear every Sunday is that your heavenly Father grabs you by the cheeks, looks you in the eye, and says, you are mine. The shepherd king has come to bring you home, to bring you in, and the shepherd warrior will come to complete your comfort, and we need it. Isn't that good news? Let's do that, and let's not ever stop doing that. Amen.